0: All right, then we'll uh, go ahead and get started. I'd like to open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get into things. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we could gather together to study your word. You are holy, holy, holy. You are the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is to come. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives and our, our adoration and our affections. Father, I pray that tonight we would come to love you more and want to know you more as we learn about you from your word. Would you help us, Father, by your spirit to understand the message that you have for us today? Would you help us to, to be open? Would you give us ears to hear, Father? As Jesus Jesus said in the, in the text that we looked at last week, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear the message that the Spirit has for the churches. Would we, Father, have ears to hear the message you have for us as your church? It's in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen. All right, well, uh, I gave some of those handouts. If you, if you missed them from last week, if you, again, if you want, want one, you can come, uh, come get one the email sheet should be going around if you weren't able to sign up last week. Um, I will just send out uh, the files for, for the handouts that I'm giving that way if you want them digitally, you can use those. Uh, if there's any updates or anything I need to send, I will, I will do that. Um, and other than that, uh, there, yeah, there's no, uh, no real announcements or anything. I did want to want to ask uh, from, uh, from the beginning how, the homework has been going. How the the steps have been going as you guys have been, uh, hopefully studying the passages each week on your own and, and applying some of these things. How has that how has that been for you? Has it been helpful? Has it been yes. difficult? Been a or more more. yeah. Yes. In chapter four is that
1: Jesus
2: on the throne, and chapter five
0: God the Father. the switch. Well, both. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get there.
3: Okay. I find it helpful just uh, uh, write things down. Yeah. Instead of just reading them and contemplating them, writing down is a fantastic process. Good.
0: Has it been um, awkward or difficult at all to try and think through some of these things if you've never done this before? Yeah.
1: But I did to do it by myself. I did ask a friend too in the beginning to read with me, but we didn't read out loud on the phone. Yeah. And um, so when I got ready for the next one and I texted, okay, her, and then these two chapters we were gonna read, and she said okay, and then we lost that. flow. I didn't contact her again and she didn't contact me. So it's been difficult um, yeah. to release that it is by myself.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. It's certainly great to study with uh, with others and in community, and that's why it's, it's great that we get to uh, be together and talk about God's word. Um, well, I do hope that that each week that you know the assignments and the, this the handouts that I give are helpful and give you some some questions to be thinking through. Um, and then again, there's that you know that bigger handout that I gave at the very beginning that hopefully will. Be a good good reference for you if you if you need that yeah sherry did you
5: i was just going to say that um i know the several of the women um we employed place this bible study method when we did our women's bible study the four steps of seeing understanding um sharing and responding and so if anybody is wants to talk through those or have questions about them i'm totally like what willing to talk, chat about those too or See where the awkward spots are just because we've been using it for a while and have experienced some of those hiccups along the way too. And it does get so
0: much easier as you go. Yeah, and she mm-hmm. is currently taking uh the class from my professor Ray, who who has taught all this. She's taking his course right now on this topic, and so she's it's all fresh in her mind. So talk to Sherry, she's she is uh, will be very helpful for you. Um and so uh, with the four steps, the last one that, that I, will, I always bring up is responding. How do we respond to the truth uh, that the text is, is revealing? How do we respond and apply what the, what the text is saying to our lives? Um, hopefully you've been able to, to think through that and, and also just to, to think not always about, okay, what's you know one thing today that I can do, but how, how can this shape my life going forward? How can this shape the way I think, the, the desires that I have, um, and the way that I live? And so uh, tonight, after we go through the passages, we'll be focusing on that for a little bit, and I'll hopefully be getting feedback from you guys about this uh, these two chapters today, which are uh, just full of, of glorious truths. How, how do we respond to that? How do we, um, we live in light of that? Um, so just be, be thinking about that as we, as we go through the text night. Um Last week, if, if you weren't here, one of the things that we did was talk about on, on a large picture scale, what, what is the main idea of the book? What is the message that, uh, that the author is trying to communicate? And so uh, the, the question we're asking is, is, what? What is John trying to, to tell us? Um, I read some, some different... Um, quotes from people, and then kind of gave you my, the statement that I have came up with, so I'll read that again. I've uh, came to the conclusion, at least at this point, maybe I'll continue to refine it as as we do this study, but um, my sentence right now is, the triune God will be glorified through both salvation and judgment, one day returning to claim ultimate victory over his enemies. Therefore, believers can persevere in the midst of suffering and temptation. So that's, uh, that's at least for now my, my summary, tried to keep it as short as I can of what is, is John trying to communicate? Uh, and, and you'll notice there's, I mean, there's a bunch of different parts of that that we will see as we go throughout the book and we'll see uh, a lot of times concentrated in, in the book, the triune God, I put the triune God because we, we have a focus on the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, um, God's glory is central, And uh, him him being glorified, especially as we'll see in this text today, Um, he's the God who who saves and and judges. He will return in the future, be victorious over his enemies. Um, And in light of all this, believers now, we can persevere through suffering and persecution and temptation uh, because of of who God is, what he's done, and what he will do. Um, So that's just briefly. Big, big idea of the book, and it's it's helpful. Whatever, whether you're reading Revelation or a small, smaller book in the Bible, or a big book to think about. Okay, what is the main idea of this entire book? What is the the author trying to say? Because they're they're writing, um, they're trying to communicate something, and so it can be helpful to Joel, Joel. was talking about writing things down to just keep drafting sentences. Of okay, if I had to if I had to explain this in one sentence, how would I how would I put it? Um, so that's that's what I came up with. Um, along with that, I, I mentioned some of the main themes. Here, here are just an overview of some of the themes: the triune God, the sovereignty and glory of God, judgment, cosmic war and God's enemies, the new creation, restoration and future hope, the people of God, worship and witness, and then perseverance. Those are all, um, I think, central themes, and those all then together are kind of formulate this main idea that we have. Here's a a couple couple quotes from um, some scholars I've shared from before. This is Greg Beale, he says, the main idea of the entire book may be roughly formulated as follows. The sovereignty of God and Christ in redeeming and judging brings them glory, which is intended to motivate saints to worship God and reflect his glorious attributes through obedience to his word. Um, Matt Emerson says, the main, main idea is remain faithful to God in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit until he returns in glorious victory over all his enemies. Really concise, five words. Remain faithful until God returns is, is what he says is, is the, the main idea. And I think that's for five words. I can't think of anything better. Remain faithful until God returns. Connected with... The, the message the author is trying to convey is, is the purpose. Why are they communicating what they are communicating? We talked about what John is, is saying, now why is he saying it? Here is uh, what I came up with for that. John's purpose is threefold. One, to reassure suffering believers of God's sovereign control, future return, and ultimate victory. Two, to warn them against compromise. Three, and to exhort them towards faithful, worship, faithful, worshipful, and expectant living. So you've kind of got three, three, uh, three strands of the, the purpose here. It's to, to reassure, to warn, and to exhort uh, towards a certain type of living. I'll skip that one. Uh, Emerson, again, he points out kind of four aspects to remind the readers that God, not Satan, is ultimately sovereign and victorious. Two, to exhort those tempted to respond negatively to trials and persecution by insisting that God is supreme in the midst of sin's effects. The proof of this is found in Jesus Christ. And then three, to show that God's people can overcome sin, suffering, and Satan. Four, to encourage his readers to remain faithful to God in their present circumstances until Christ returns. So he he says to remind, exhort, show, and encourage. Um... But we can see, at least, the the reasons John is writing what he's writing. And then when we keep in mind why John is writing what he's writing, then we look at what he's writing what he's writing. It will help us respond correctly. Because if John is writing for a specific purpose, and we are saying the text means something, and then trying to apply it and respond in our lives, and it's different than the purpose that John is, is writing for, we're, we're actually um, betraying the author's intention because wrapped up in the author's intent of what he is meaning to communicate is why he's communicating. And so if John is, if John is writing to encourage us uh, with the book of Revelation and all we do is get really discouraged by it, then we're not responding correctly and we're not understanding it correctly. Um, and so when we identify what is the message of uh, the book and then individual passages. It needs to be in line with these purposes. Any questions there before we, we move into uh, our passage for today? Yeah, Gary. I just want to have a little
3: bit of a piggy question on seeing you have there on your purpose. So what, what do you mean by expect, living? What would you intended to, to incorporate that?
0: So uh, expectant living, by expectant living, I mean um, a future-focused looking forward to the return of Christ and the completion of all the promises um, that he has, has made. We'll, we've talked about already and we'll continue to talk about how um, we are currently in these latter days and then when Christ returns is when they end. And so we look forward to the end of that. And so it's it's yeah it's by expectant I mean forward looking um, forward looking looking living that is also faithful and worshipful Um, it is um, so
3: is that somewhat equivalent to saying hopeful living
0: yes yeah yeah it's another way of of putting it all right anything else before we uh, we move on into chapter four and five or. Passages for today? Well, then let's, uh, let's get going. Uh, your homework was to read those, those chapters and to, to go through some of the questions to uh, try and pick up on some of the different things. And so I, I thought I'd just survey a few of the questions that I was pointing out, a few of the things I was hoping you might notice. And so, um, so first, did you notice the change in setting? that occurred in uh, chapter four. So where is John now, and what's, what's going on? Did anyone pick up on that? He was
6: told to come up here,
0: and the He was, yeah. He was in the spirit in heaven. Um, there's actually four different times in the book where it says John was in the spirit, in a place and it's kind of this shift of setting uh, leads into a new series of visions. Back in chapter one, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when I heard behind me um, a loud voice like a trumpet saying. And he he said in the verse before that, he was on the island of of Patmos. Now here, chapter four, he hears another voice like a trumpet, which tells him to come up here. And at once he was in the spirit and behold, a throne and he was in the throne room of heaven. So you have this shift now as he's in the spirit, in a throne room in heaven. Um, and the, this new series of visions is going to come up. It kind of introduces a new, new section of the book. Um, so what, what happens in these chapters? What just don't have to explain in detail, but what what goes on?
7: creatures and the 24 elders, and they're
0: worshiping. Yeah, just to put it really simply, he sees a vision of God and of Christ in heaven. He, he sees the uh, the worship in heaven, and he sees, um, we get into chapter 5, the, the judgment being, being beginning to be poured out, and uh, the worship of, of the heavenly beings. All right. Um, what, what about symbolism and imagery? We've been talking about this throughout our, our study and, and Revelation is extremely symbolic, uses a lot of imagery. What, um, what symbols and imagery did you pick up on? Were there things that, um, that you read and you thought, oh yeah, this is, this is, you know, this is standing for something else. This is uh, communicating something. And also then connected to that, um, allusions from the Old Testament and a lot of the imagery is probably drawn from the Old Testament and so was there any uh, imagery that you you saw being used oh yeah I've, I've read that in the Old Testament anything that stood out?
6: Sea glass
0: for one. yeah the sea of glass where, uh, where's that from? I'm not
6: sure exactly where it's from I was looking that up and I
0: yeah. in the yeah Ezekiel 1 and 2 mentions the the sea of glass in Ezekiel's vision. Any other uh, allusions or things that you noticed?
5: Uh, it talks about in verse five of chapter four: flashes of lightning, rumbling thunder, like like Mount Sinai.
0: Exactly. Uses the same exact language there. Cindy, did you?
5: The rainbow.
0: Yeah, the rainbow. Rainbow will and. I'll bring, bring out some of this as we go through the passage, but rainbow, you obviously think about Noah and, and the, the sign of the uh, Noahic covenant. And then also in uh, Ezekiel 1, there's uh, in Ezekiel's vision of, of God, there's a rainbow representing his majesty. Uh, any other, any, anything else? Any other allusions to the Old Testament? You guys just must not read your Old right Testament, the, right?
4: <laughs> right at the
3: beginning, of the trumpet it goes back to Exodus 19. Yeah. It says yeah. The is, as God's
6: presence is approaching them. Yeah. God's
0: well,
6: appearance itself is described by various prophets to as Yeah. The precious stones. Uh,
0: yep. Precious the stones. Wood. Yep.
3: The throne um, is much like Ezekiel.
0: Yeah. Pretty much everything, in here is, uh, and, as, and as we'll see, and um, I gave you guys again a, a handout with with uh, allusions and, and different parallel passages, things that um, that stuck out, so um, you could can look through those. Um, but as we'll as we we'll see, really the the big the big um, text that John is drawing from here uh, is going to be Daniel seven, uh, Ezekiel one and two, and Isaiah six. Exodus, so there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of allusions and just being rooted in these uh, images and scenes from the Old Testament. Um,
6: do you think that the fact that it is the same sort of descriptions as the Old Testament would mean that that corroborates and helps tie the Bible together as a whole, it's all, everybody seeing the same thing? Or that people are just copying, using other people's.
0: Uh... I, I think I think that uh, it 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 does speak to the unity of the Bible, and there are there are certainly differences. And as we'll we'll see today, there are. John takes these these things and uses them in a way that uh, he's showing their <laughs> fulfillment, or he's not necessarily sometimes even saying. I, he's not using it in a way that is violating what it, what it means in the Old Testament, but he's um, expanding on it and doing a lot of things. And so, uh, yeah, I do think, I mean, I think that it, it shows the, the unity of scripture and the brilliance of uh, the, the authors of scripture. Uh, yeah. Well, I think it's particularly interesting when you think about the fact that you're talking about visions specifically that the prophets had. And then that John is having that those are the same images that we're seeing. Well, and especially when um, there's, you know, there's only a few visions of heaven recorded in the Bible, and they all match up. And then we get, you know, a bunch of Christian bestsellers. (laughs) I went to heaven for 90 minutes. I got in a car crash and went to heaven, whatever. And they don't really look anything like the biblical account. And so that does... So a lot of other problems with those, but that's, that's one glaring one. And so the fact that there is this unity does, I think, uh, uh, I, I think it is important. Um, all right, uh, last last question. There were there what were what were the themes that you saw running through these chapters? What stood out? What seemed emphasized? What seemed uh, significant? It's even interesting to
8: me that John is seeing Christ and he walked around with Christ for a number of years and yet when he sees him in his glorified
1: state he's still he's
8: just it's all like, oh Jesus yeah. I'm going to hang out with you because I'm comfortable with you he's, he's still yeah. really astounded uh, sure. yeah <laughs>
4: yeah,
5: down yeah. Uh, I just the repetition of holy
4: and worthy hmm. two chapters.
3: Yeah. So, 24 elders.
0: Why 24? That's an interesting number. Double 12. Which is it price. is. We will get there in a few minutes. Yes, it's an important question.
3: That Jesus is, uh, the themes, that Jesus is the promised one, that he is the mm-hmm. fulfillment, he is the answer that he has got.
0: Yeah. So another another Bible study tip, so you you want to look for things that are emphasized and a, a, one of the best ways to do that is look for repeated words. Um to you know you can just as you're reading just circle circle things and so uh in these two chapters the word throne is used 17 times. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot and and we'll talk about what that what that represents and and what it's saying, but um but yeah, it, it's it's obviously central to, to what this, uh, these passages are saying. And so, um, yeah, it's good to, to be, be tracing those words that are, are used over and over. All right. Well, uh, as then we, we get into the passage, brief, brief flyby fly of what we've gone through so far. We went through chapter one. Uh, we're introduced to... The the book, we learn it's an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a letter or an epistle that is then going to be sent to seven different churches. Uh, We learn that the seven churches stand for the the totality of of the church, the the completion of the body of Christ, and so it's uh, the the universal church, really. And so then in chapter one, the contents uh, that Jesus is going to, to reveal to John. That the contents of which John is going to record and then send to these churches, um, include what must soon take place. We've seen that Revelation is going to be a book about the latter days, the, the end times, which began with the resurrection of Christ and are then still continuing until he returns. Um, Revelation is a book about the past, the present, and the future. It's not just about the future. It's not just about the past. It's about the present and the past and the future. Uh, Jesus commissioned John as his prophet, and in chapters 2 and 3, he sends messages to each of the seven churches. Again, these churches represent the totality, the complete number of Christ's church. And so uh, the message, we looked at uh, chapters 2 and 3 last week, the message of those chapters was, in order to inherit eternal life, believers must conquer through obedience to Christ by remaining faithful in suffering, persevering in good works, maintaining doctrinal truth, and resisting compromise. In order to inherit eternal life, believers must conquer through obedience to Christ. That is what what those those letters or those addresses were saying, and so we too need to heed this message, just as all the other churches in John's time were expected to. This uh, then explains the repeated phrase Jesus said at the end of each address. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This was the message for the churches, plural, for all churches. And so now we get into chapter 4, the setting changes, as I mentioned. We learn in verse 2, John's taken up in the spirit to the temple throne throne room of heaven. And then what we read in chapters 4 and 5 is then John's recollection of uh, these visions that he received there. It's interesting, in in 321, right before we get into this next section, um, Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so really that then takes us into these uh, visions in the throne room of Christ and the father sitting on the throne. It explains in more detail uh, the exaltation of Christ following his resurrection when he sat down at the right hand of the father as ruler over the church and the cosmos. Uh, This was all accomplished by his death and his resurrection. And so I, I talked about last week how the beginning and ending of a book often kind of give you a clue as to the main themes and the main points uh, you'll be seeing throughout the book. We talked about some of those main themes in chapters one through three, and then we'll see in these chapters today, a lot of them keep coming back up. Several of the phrases, several of the images, they, they keep reappearing. And so um, it's, it's helpful to keep track of those, those things. And then uh, another thing that I, I've stressed of course, and we just talked about it, is the importance of the the Old Testament context of revelation and the imagery that's being used. And so it's no different in in these chapters. It's especially important here. Uh, It seems like the entirety of John's visions in chapters 4 and 5 are deliberately recorded with Daniel 7 in mind. And so uh, there's a list of parallels that I have. Take note of these. These are... uh, Greg Beal points these out in his, his commentary. So. You start with a prophet who looks. Prophet then sees a throne in heaven with God sitting on it. God's appearance is then described. There's fire before the throne. There's myriads and myriad of myriads of heavenly beings the thr- uh, surrounding the throne. Books are open, opened or scrolls. There's a divine messianic figure who approaches the throne. He receives a kingdom which will last forever. The kingdom consists of all peoples, nations, and tongues. The prophet experiences distress on account of the vision. The prophet receives wisdom concerning the vision from one of the heavenly beings. Saints are given authority to reign over a kingdom. And then the vision concludes with mention of God's eternal reign. So, like, that's a, that's a lot of parallels. And so he's clearly, uh, he's clearly portraying this in, in the same... Frame in context of, of Daniel's vision. That's an, another thing, like you said, uh, Kevin, with the consistency of what they see and what they what they proclaim. Um, it's very very much similar, and there's a lot of lot of further connections there that we'll see. Um, so let's let's just hop into uh, to beginning of chapter four. Did, did, Joel, did you have a question? No. Did anyone have any have any questions there? All right. Uh, I wish we had time to talk about every single verse. We don't. But um, we've talked about a few of these beginning verses. And I'm sorry, I don't have the, don't have the text up there. I kind of ran out of time on my PowerPoint. My PowerPoint's kind of lame today. So hopefully you have a Bible with you. <laughs> and you should. We're at a Bible study. So shame on you if you don't. The um, chapter begins with uh, the introduction of this new vision. John sees an open door in heaven. And he's going to be shown what must soon take place or what must take place after this. You should remember this phrase, what must take place after this, from the very first verse of the book when we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Um, I talked about the first week, how here uh, John is alluding to Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, uh, verses 28 and 29 and 45. Uh, the important thing to note being that John... Is showing how what Daniel saw which was uh, Daniel saw a vision about the last days or the the latter days Um, and now John is saying this is happening now it's right around the corner um, and we are in these last days and so it's the fulfillment here Um, the New Testament authors understood themselves to be living in these last days and so the entire context of John's revelation is within this framework John's vision here shares a lot of overlap from Daniel, uh, Daniel 7. We mentioned, uh, Kevin mentioned just other, other uh, parallels. So Ezekiel 1 has a, a similar, similar vision of, of God. Isaiah 6 um, in 1 Kings 22, 2 Chronicles 18. We, we also have these, uh, the, these descriptions of the throne room of God. And so there's, again, this consistency and, and here. John is drawing on these uh, this common uh, scene, this ca- common setting here. And so then as we go to the verse 3, we read that he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. This is obviously a very majestic, majestic description of God, it draws on Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, um, in, in the stones that are, are used, and the, some of those same stones will be mentioned at the end of, end of the book as stones that are um, on the, the new, new Jerusalem, the city of God. And then in Ezekiel 1, as I also mentioned, the rainbow is used, it, it's, it's seen behind uh, the uh, the figure on the throne that Ezekiel sees, and it, it is uh, equated with the, the majesty and radiance of God. And so here we are just introduced to, to this radiant, majestic being sitting on the throne who John, John sees. Uh, again, I mentioned throne, used 17 times in these two chapters. The word is, um, is representative of God's sovereignty and his rule and his power and his authority. And so, again... Um, because it's emphasized so much, that is one of the the central central themes of this, this section. One scholar said this, Revelation presents God's throne as the center of the universe. All creation finds its significance in orientation toward the throne and its almighty occupant. The throne indicates how decisive for the theological perspective of revelation is faith in God's sovereignty over all things. The throne is central, literally in the vision it's at the center, but also to, to the message here it is, it is key to understand. Verse four, which which Cindy was eager to get into, uh, with the tw- we we have twenty four thrones seated on the thrones are twenty four elders. So, uh, what what the heck are the, the twenty four elders? This is a really interesting um, interesting image, and it's a complicated one. There's a lot of different um, different ways you could take it. Uh, so I'll give you what I think is, is the best option. Um, I think that the 24 elders are best identified as angelic beings, um, as angels representing the church as a whole, including um, the, the believers, the saints of the Old Testament. And So I'll explain that, and if you have questions, you can, you can go for it. So uh, the number 24 is obviously significant seems best to take it as the sum of the, the, 12, uh, the 12 tribes or the 12 patriarchs and then the 12 apostles. This is how the number is used at the end of the book. It adds them together as the foundations and as the gates of the, uh, the dwelling place of God. So 12 plus 12, you have, um, you have 24 um, taken together then. Yeah, with the patriarchs and the apostles, it would represent the church as a universal priesthood of believers, those from the Old Testament and the New Testament and those to come. The number 24 is also um, most likely based off of First Chronicles, 24 through 26, where David has 24 orders of priests, 24 Levitical gatekeepers, and 24 worship, Levitical worship leaders. 24, 24, 24, they're all related to um, the, the tribe of Levi, the, the priestly tribe. And so here um, this would, would show how the 24 is representative of um, the entire people of God, but also the, the priesthood of all believers, the church um, at worship. I also think that it's legitimate to see these 24 as represent as angels representing. Um, people, because in the addresses to the churches, the angels of each church represented that church. So here you have 24 angelic beings, I think, representing the totality of the people of God. And also in Daniel 10 through 12, angels represent nations. And so you have this, um, this practice of angels representing larger groups of people. And so I think that that here, again, with the 12 and 12 of the Old Testament and New Testament believers being represented by, uh, by angels, I think that um, it's it's a, a, the likely source of the image, and also with with the four living creatures, which we will see in these next few verses. I think it's best to take the four living creatures as representative of all animate life uh, throughout creation. Um, four. We'll, talk about the number four, it's also a number that, that expresses totality and completion. And so seeing that as, as representing all of creation, and if, this, if the four are representative of all of creation, then you also have uh, the elders as represented representatives of uh, heavenly realities of the people of God.
9: Question about yeah. the 24 elders. Um, do angels get crowns?
0: So they, uh, they typically don't. And so here they are portrayed with crowns. And I think that also speaks to um, their identification with the people of God. Because throughout Revelation and even in the New Testament, uh, it is the, the saints who persevere who are promised the crown in Revelation chapter 2. Um, let's see. Why can't I find it? Uh, in, in 2.12, I believe. No, not 2.12. <laughs> uh, the, the, the one who... Uh, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 2.10. Mm-hmm. Um, in f- chapter 3, verse 4. The one who, or verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments... Uh, he will have the authority to, to rule with God on his throne in, in chapter 3, verse 21. And so the white garments, crowns, sitting on the thrones, um, it's not typically the, uh, the place of angels, but that is what's promised to the saints. And so I do think then if they're representing that, uh, that larger reality then if this is... Um, it's linking these ideas and developing, developing them and showing how um, those who continue to, to persevere and those who overcome will receive that reward. And we will see in chapter 20 um, and in, in 19, the, the saints clothed with white, In chapter 20 reigning on thrones with, with Christ. Um, so I, I think the reality being conveyed here is that through these images, is that the church is represented in heaven by powerful heavenly beings. Those beings attend the throne of God. And they hold great power. And they exercise it on our behalf. Um, the church, as Revelation shows, has, um, it, it's not just on the earth. It has a, has a stake in heaven. And so that is why, as the body of Christ, we are uh, to, to not just live um, focused on this earth because we have this this reality of, um, this, this larger reality, I think. And so I, I do think that um, that is, is is what's being portrayed here. Uh, again, it, it continues to develop some of those themes, um, promises for believers participating in a heavenly temple, obsession of crowns, white clothing, and dominion and rule, which will be granted to them if they persevere. So believers who are faithful will be clothed as, the, as these elders are, and they will sit on a throne with Christ as promised in chapters two and three and chapter 20. Um, so that's how, that's how I take them. That's what I think the, uh, the imagery is, is suggesting, especially with its connection to the Old Testament. Does anyone have any questions there or Anyone following? Everyone following with that? Okay: Actually, go. I When I
8: think of throne, I just think of a big chair. That what we're supposed to think of, or is it like, is it like part of like a platform as well? Because we will see like the lamb standing in the center of the throne, that sounds
0: weird. Yeah, it's it's probably like a, a giant, probably is just like a giant chair, but probably bigger than any chair you've thought about or seen. But um, yeah, you do have the the lamb who it's you have the kind of this throne room with. The focal point being the throne on which, which God sits, surrounded by the creatures and by the other thrones, and then Christ is kind of presented, the lamb is presented, and he then sits on the throne um, with, with the Father. Um,
6: I think that the people who lived in that time had a, a far different view of what a throne is. A throne is a place you did not go unless you, like the Book of Esther, you were summoned. You didn't go there. Yeah. You just show up and you kill. It's, yeah. it's a, the ultimate
0: authority for your government yeah. and, and
8: the, it's the very symbol of authority.
0: Yeah,
8: that's actually a good point. Yeah. And especially the throne of God, which is in the holy of holies. You don't like when Isaiah finds himself in the holy of holies. He probably freaks
0: out like. Well, that's why. That's why. Yeah, why Isaiah freaks out. And it says the train of his robe filled. Filled the temple, and that's because he's not looking up. He's he's prostrate oh. on the ground, but he's only but he sees this, uh, his robe, and so um, so yeah, it's exalted, and majestic, and, and high above.
3: Well, it's interesting that the elders um, are also seated on thrones. Yeah. So um, there's
0: the throne of God. But there's also important
3: thrones around there. Twenty-four elders on them. So it's like almost. It's like that's a representation of, say, the Mount of our
0: um, righteousness through Christ. Yeah, and, and like I mentioned in uh, three twenty one, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Right, exactly. And so, um, we it's this we we rule we will rule with Christ. And Revelation twenty also talks about that. And it's you know not, not like we become gods or that we are on the same level, but God those who he is redeemed then have this authority to, uh, to, to rule with Christ. Um, Paul Greg says that we'll it judge it, angels.
4: Um, so. Greg mentioned in his uh, sermon a couple weeks ago about government, of how, how God delegates to angels and delegates to people mm-hmm.
6: various things to do. It's yeah. going to be a, a lot more clearly defined in the light of the kingdom. But, yeah. but, uh, he's doing
8: it already. Yeah. And it seems like from Genesis, God designed us to reign, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And then that kind of went downhill. Exactly. But it seems like us reigning again seems like in line with, like,
0: his... The entire story of you know, Scripture, the movement.
5: I, um, I wonder if it's an okay way to think about it, I'm asking this, I guess, because I think about the throne, and I think what Kevin says is so spot on in terms of, like, I have very little concept of what this actually means, like you know, because I'm not then living under the rule of an earthly king, so to speak. But um I I know like so often in the Old Testament when it's talking about um Mount Zion or the holy city or those things like and it's it's looking forward or it's eschatological, it's in terms of not like it's talking about a specific necessarily a specific place in terms of a location or thing, but it's talking about God himself. Like, that mm-hmm. is God himself. And I wonder if the concept of throne in this picture is not so, so much as, like, it's a chair, or it's this, or it's that, or it's. but it is, it is the majesty and authority. It represents the majesty and authority of God entirely.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, and I think that also lines up with how Throne is used metaphorically when it's also not talking about God. Um, uh, Throne is used uh, 47 times in Revelation. And 40 of those times it's referring to to God's throne. And then other times it's either talking about the elders' thrones or um, the throne that the beast sits on. Or Satan's throne in uh, the addresses to the churches. Um, It it mentions that um, there are are those who... um, well, they're, they're where Satan's throne is. Um, and I don't think it's, you know, there, there are people who, oh, oh, yeah, this, you know, this place in the Middle East, like, it's really demonic, and that's where Satan's throne is, like, but it's just this, I think, presence of, of Satan and, and his activity. And so I think that then, we talk about how it's used metaphorically, yeah, it's the presence of God. Yeah, in, uh, in verses five through seven, this vision continues, and we have these four four creatures um, who who are around the throne. Um, again, we still have, uh, as uh, Sherry Drill pointed out, the, the allusion to the the Exodus story and um, God's revelation, his theophany on Mount Sinai. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peal of thund- thunder, the seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've talked about the spirits. Um, the sevenfold spirit being the, the totality, the fullness of the, the Holy Spirit. Um, and then now we're introduced to these four creatures. They're full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, it's this, this weird, weird picture.
3: That's what I was thinking about. And when it uses the four creatures in Ezekiel, it's almost like they're part of the throne. And here mm-hmm. they're full of eyes. So some seem like if they're simply representing creation, so they're tied to God somehow as omniscience and an omnipresence. Exactly.
0: And I think that's what the eyes are. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the yeah, the, the eyes uh, that, that roam throughout the earth. And so uh, the four, I think is, uh, especially in regards to creation, the number four is used to talk about totality. So you have um, the four corners of the earth, even though you know the earth isn't a square, but it's what? just, <laughs> uh, the, the four winds, four directions um, in Genesis 2, the four rivers, um, there's four divisions for the locations the tribes are um, lined up in, and so it's kind of just the, the fullness, and so I think, yeah, you have uh, the fullness of all of creation, which is God's, God's doing, and they are his um, as Joel mentioned, with his omnis- omniscience and his just omnipresent being everywhere at all times, um, or his knowing of all things, I I think that it, it represents that here. Well,
5: the scripture says over and over, especially in the Old Testament, that God calls the heavens and the earth as covenant witnesses. They see
0: And I think this is a good example of uh, understanding symbolism. These four living creatures should probably not be taken as literal descriptions of heavenly creatures that we are going to see when we get to, uh, when we get to go be with Jesus. I think they're, they're symbolic. Um, and it's not that they... And, well, and this also then explains the difference that you have between um, the visions of Ezekiel and Isaiah and and Daniel and John. There is a lot of unity, but then there's also differences in their explanations. So are they, you know, what are, what are they doing there? Because I don't think they're, you know, we're going to get to heaven and, and see this living creature that looks like a lion and it has a bunch of eyes all over. But rather, um, what John was seeing is a pictorial representation of a r- true reality. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I, d- does that does that make sense? Is that... that? totally
3: makes sense. I think that's, I've been thinking about that a lot. And that's like, when it says, you know, God is, um, when it's describing God, it's really not describing what he looks like. It's describing his
0: attributes. Yeah. Right? And it's describing who he is. I mean, um, people get caught up like, oh, they had six wings
3: or something like that. Well, what what's the attributes? So these eyes are the attributes that God sees all things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the throne, it's not that he has a physical throne in there, he gets up and off of it and moves around and is, his majesty is perfection so yeah. um, that's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about the rainbow is that all the radiance of God and mm-hmm. Jesus is emanating from his presence yeah. John has seen these things, which is God's way of communicating to John and us of God's attributes his greatness, his majesty but do you think the creatures are actually creatures? Like, like, like I would be
8: frightened to see Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. <laughs> that's just scary. But and I and I, I would think I totally agree that like the eyes and the attributes they have, their wings or the what kind of beast they're presented as are representative. But do you think they are actually creatures? Um, some creature that is being described like this, or that they're just they're not even reading in heaven. They're just yeah. a metaphor. for Yeah, systematic. that's
0: a good question. Um, I think they could be for sure, and I, I think like with the with the elders or something too, like that representative, like, uh, I, yeah, it's not that the that they're not representing some heavenly reality, but that it's it's not a literal description; it's just a representation of them, and so it is a it is a reality that John is portraying, but it's you know not literal it's very um, pictorial. So what I'm
3: saying is the significance is in what they're representing. Yeah. Whether they're simply representation or whether they're truly, truly there. The significance yeah. is, is the meaning is what they were representing. Yeah. Like the yes. 24. Like what's that representing? The unity of the Bible. God's
4: yeah.
9: Message. yeah. We read that the four faces of Jesus is as simple as a <clears throat> I don't know if
6: you've
0: what uh so,
9: uh? so the four gospels. We read something about it, saying that the four faces symbolize Jesus, and in the four gospels, lion is mighty, ox is strong, eagle is the king of birds, and the other one, man, which is God's greatest creation.
0: Yeah, and so I um, I think that speaks to a little bit of the. Representing all of creation, you have you know the, the the best of the best, the lion and the eagle, and the pinnacle of God's creation. Um, that also speaks to the, the totality of, of creation. There, yeah, yeah Scott.
1: Um, I kind of hear you saying that <clears throat> what he's describing here is not actually what he's seen. And I see in chapter four he he looked. And there before me was a door standing in heaven and the voice heard he. This sounds like John is observing this. He's not interpreting it at the time. He's seeing this. Now the Bible will interpret it as symbolism, but it, it appears to me like this is an observation from John.
5: Yeah. Except that I think too, we have to remember, like it's like when the prophets are trying to describe <clears throat> their visions in the Old Testament. I think they're saying so often it's, it'd be like saying, it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like this, and it was, I mean, you're talking about heavenly visions of God that we're trying to put into human words, too, and I just think there's this human piece that's
0: being conveyed. Yeah, and I I think it's also, uh, I think it's also, whether or not he's, that's actually what he saw and he's just writing exactly what he saw or he saw it and then is taking some time and then writing it. If if it is exactly what he saw, I, I, I do think it is, what he is seeing is coming to him in that form of symbolic and, and image um, heavy. And so uh, I, I do think we need to take into account that we are not side by side with John looking at the visions and interpreting those, we are reading a book that John has composed and given to us, and it's a part of Holy Scripture. And so we are now interpreting the text. Um, but, if that, but if this is what John is just seeing, I think, I think God is communicating in, you know, what better way for him to, to communicate these things than with the, the, the language of the Old Testament and to be uh, laden with all of these symbols that he should he should have this, um, this foundation in. I understand
6: that symbols communicate a whole lot of information just to, just to look at. And it takes, as you grow as a Christian, you'll be able to understand more and more and more of the information that you're looking at. As the church grows as a whole, you'll be able to understand more and more and more of the information from the same vision the Bible, that's why you can read it and learn more and more and more from it. it there's a whole lot of information there and you can't read it all in the first city. Like we're doing right now, we're, we're, yeah. we're figuring it out.
0: You know? Yeah, and so I, I think that there is certainly a part of it that you know, how could he possibly record like everything that he saw in all of its majesty and complexity uh, and so it, like he had to have been at a loss for words some ways but also that um, yeah I, I think that what whether again whether it's just being revealed to him in this way and he doesn't change at all or if he's seeing the significance of these things and then then sh- communicating it with imagery i think that um, we kind of end up in the same place of having to figure out what is the imagery mean so okay i
1: don't because what I'm hearing is that if I saw a that black cow, that's what I saw. But because I saw it and I said it, then it's not believable. That's what I'm hearing in this when John said he saw and he looked and he saw. And these things, I mean, if, if he saw them and he wrote them, then who would have said they're not true? Because that's what I'm getting saying. And it's not agreeing with, with my spirit because if these men are inspired by God to write what they see, then I'm, I'm confused. Or I must have missed something. It's,
0: <clears throat> so it's, it's not, I'm, I'm absolutely not saying that we, you know, this isn't true. I absolutely believe it's true. But how you communicate truth is dependent, I think, on, uh, on genre and, and so that's why I, I talked about at the beginning about different genres because um, Colossians, like we're going through on Sunday mornings, is going to communicate truth very differently than an apocalyptic book is going to communicate truth. And so the, the truth, the meaning, is what the author intended to convey. And so if he is conveying it with imagery, we then have to figure out what he's trying to convey, not just look at it, oh yeah, he saw he saw four creatures, okay. Well, what does it mean? What is he trying to represent? And so um, we're, not, we're absolutely not saying that it's, that it's not true or, or even that this didn't happen. I, absolutely believe it happened, but we're looking at now God has inspired the text of scripture, he's inspired the books, and so um, we are to read the books and to then figure out and interpret what it means, and, and I think that there's a whole host of, of tools that we can use to to help us do that responsibly, and I think one of the ways we read responsibly is by respecting Genres and the ways that you communicate differently, and so I think just applying a flat method of taking everything literally all across the board it just it doesn 't work and and actually no one you know does it so um, so we have to choose well what is what is symbolic, what is being conveyed in imagery, and how are we going to interpret it what does it mean um, and there also is, I mean, just in terms of, of categories, a difference between me seeing something and describing it and writing it down and then um, John, an apostle of God, getting a heavenly vision and then writing it down and it becomes a part of, uh, it is inspired scripture. And so there's a bit of a difference there. Does that, does that help at all? Okay.
8: It is interesting because there's those two parts gives him this vision, like through his eyeballs and through his ears, he has these images and sounds coming in. But then the Holy Spirit is also with him later as he sits down to write this account. And like both, he's, God's with him both times.
0: Exactly. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't, it doesn't make much sense to me that he's writing all of this on the go, just kind of scribbling these, these notes. And, and I do think that there's hints that he has put this together with the opening that he writes. He writes this, um, this introduction and also this conclusion. I think that he is recounting and re, uh, retelling what he has seen. And so that's different than the vision that he saw, though he did see a vision and he's telling us about what he saw. It's different than if we are just, you know, there next to him looking at the vision he has embellished it, maybe that's not the right word, but he's, he's framed it in terms of this book that he has now written and is, and is trying to communicate. And so the distinction that I think I'm making is between the text of scripture and then the event that it's talking about. Um, when we're studying the Bible, we're studying the text that God has inspired.
6: You just out a picture of your phone and take some pictures. Yeah, I know. So you should just recorded it. Yeah. The video. Bye. Yeah, hear me. Well, I was going to say when, uh, when
7: Christ came down as a man he died, he was resurrected and represented as a man, and they talk about him as Lamb of God in uh, the Gospels, but um, here he actually sees Christ represented as the lamb that was slain. So it's representational of Christ in that sense. We know, we know who he's talking about specifically in there.
0: Yeah, he didn't just, you know, like magically transform into a, a lamb and then he switches back to. With seven horses and the
6: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: I know I do when he's here, so. Yeah, yeah. Jennifer. Um Jennifer. So I wish I thought of this at home because so we researched it. But um, so everything that we're learning about here in these two chapters, the throne room um, in heaven, is this the throne room in heaven that we will see? Is, is this um, so back in the end of Revelation we see in chapter 20 there's the great white throne of judgment, chapter 21, we have a new heaven and a new earth. Uh-huh. We have the New Jerusalem coming down, um, and then it describes. There's no temple in this city. The temple is the Lord God Himself, the Almighty, the Lamb. There's no need for sun or moon. The glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is the Lamb. So I'm just wondering, um, kind of what we were you were mentioning, Sherry. And I was really in it with you <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: when you're talking about. It's just sort of the. It's the. the, the Feeling and the sensation that you have that, that what heaven really is, what the throne really is, that is irrespective of place mm-hmm. and time. So is what we're reading about what we will see or is this the pre-New Heavens and New Earth?
0: Yeah, I think this is, is pre-New Heavens, New Earth. And we do have this intermediate state, which we will talk about as we get towards the end of the book, where those who... who die before Christ returns uh, are, are with Christ um, and but yeah I, I think a lot of times we have this picture of heaven it's just kind of like and it's kind of encouraged by you know, the, the earth is not my home and you know not of this world and I'm just going to die and go be with Jesus and like get off this world but that's not what the really the, the ultimate hope of the gospel is it's the restoration of all things in heaven and earth and so um, if you die before then, then you go be with Jesus until that day when heaven and earth are are reunited and brought back together. And so, um, so yeah, here's where I, I think again, um, talking about the fact that the book isn't just future. And so this isn't this isn't just future, and then you'll go there and then come back down. But it's a, a present reality, and then um, the future reality being the new heavens and the new earth. And so. Um, yeah, and uh, in terms of whether or not, like, if you were to go be with Jesus right now, would you see this throne room? Uh, I do think that it's that, yeah, no, I don't know exactly what it would be like, but it's, um, I do think that it is highly symbolic in communicating, like, these things about what the presence of the Lord is like right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Good questions. Is there, is there any, anyone else who has, has anything? Super good. I think
5: for me, that's where keeping in mind what we've talked about as the premise for this is so important because I'm going to start tripping out about, like, is this, wait, is this what it's going to look like or whatever? And so I keep continually reminding myself, like, okay, no, why is, what's the point of why John is showing
4: me this picture right now? And the point is this.
0: Yeah. In verse 8, these four creatures, they, they begin this hymn. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When we, uh, when we encounter kind of this interruption in, in the text, we've been, um, been getting this, this recollection of these visions, and then we get this, this poem, this hymn, this song. Uh, it's important when, when you see these types of things, it's kind of like it's a break in the pattern. It stands out, and uh, a lot of times, even in your Bibles, it'll be indented if it's poetic. Um, my, my professor, Ray Lubeck, he, he likes to call this HDT, uh, for heavy-duty theology. Sherry renamed it uh, high-definition theology. Um, the point is that when it's interrupted like this, it's, it's really significant, and the author, they when they... Um, when they in interrupt kind of the, where they're going with this poetry, um, it's, it's going to be communicating a, a very important theme or a summary of the main point the author is making. And so we'll, we'll see it when we, if you look at all of the, if you just read the parts in your Bible that are indented um, in these chapters, I think you have a pretty good idea of what the main point of the chapter is, um, Another example, and uh, I, would lo- I would love to just talk about this all day. I think this is the coolest thing ever. In, um, in the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, um, there are lar- large sections of, of narrative, of story, and then there's a poem. The narrative is always describing something that happened in the past. The poem is always looking forward. It's always um, eschatological. It's always future-oriented. And so when we think of Genesis, we think it's a book about the past. Um, and in some ways it is, but the, the main points that stick out, the heavy-duty theology or the high-definition theology, um, are looking towards the future. Genesis 49 um, is, a, is just saturated with... And it, it, Genesis 49 begins with, um, this is what will happen in the last days. And then you, you get this... Uh, there's, it's saturated with Messiah and this future coming king. Um, and this, this chapter that we're in right now actually alludes to Genesis 49. So, but that's an example of how you get this break, and especially when it happens with poetry, um, it's really important. So look for these. Uh, they'll stand out, especially if it's indented. But, um, but these are also just beautiful as you read through the worship of um, those in, in uh, the presence of God and the words they say here we have holy, holy, holy. Where else, where does that come from? Does anyone? Isaiah 6, where Isaiah gets this vision of the throne room and says, holy, holy, holy. It's an important word, and I, I think that it's one of those kind of Christianese words we say holy all the time. What does holy mean? Um, we often hear that the, the root idea of holiness is, is being set apart or being separate from. Uh, And so when we're talking about God, his holiness means his moral purity and his divine um, transcendence, his superiority, his otherness. Um, In all reality, I don't think that definition is very helpful. Uh, I don't actually think that that is what the word means. I don't think that holy means set apart. Um, the, The most basic meaning of the word is consecrated or devoted so in scripture it operates within the context of covenant relationships and it expresses commitment so when it comes to god then for him to be holy means that he is completely devoted to his covenant and to his own standards of righteousness and justice and those standards set the covenant so he's completely devoted and that's why we have the the holy the holy days the holy um the holy items, the holy people. are there people who are devoted for a purpose. They're consecrated um, to God. And so purity then is a result of being holy in the biblical sense, but it's not the meaning of the word. And often scripture talks about God's um, transcendence, his superiority, and the fact that he's holy, but um, doesn't mean that they're, directly connected or synonymous, that it's the meaning of the word. So holy, he is, uh, he is devoted. And here, in, in these chapters, he is the repetition of holy, holy, holy. He is completely devoted, devoted to, uh, to his, his justice and his righteousness and his glory in these chapters and also to, uh, to saving his people and the covenant he has made. Any questions there?
9: I just want to make a comment. Uh, We read across that these creatures have the ability and insight greater than man to worship, and they exist to worship, and they do it intelligently. And our lack of seeing can be that it can hurt our worship.
0: Yeah, and I, I love... If you look at verse uh, verse 8, it says, Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him and worship him. The living creatures never cease to give glory. And it says whenever they do, the other people worship. And so it's just a worship fest. There's constant worshiping. Um, of, of God and he is, he is worthy of that, he is worthy um, of, of all praise and glory and honor and with um, with the, the, the creatures I think standing for the totality of creation, the elders representing the totality of the people of God, we have in heaven this picture of um, creation doing what it was designed to do, worship God um, and it's this picture of, of heaven. And it also, I think, informs our own lives, our own worship. And uh, I think these texts have a lot to say for, for how, we, how we worship together on Sundays, how we worship in our day-to-day life, the things that we say, the things that we focus on. Um, this picture into heavenly worship gives us a model for our our earthly worship. Into chapter 5, chapter uh, 5, we have this, this next vision. He sees uh, in the hand of the one sitting, seated on the throne a scroll. It's written on the front and the back. It's alluding to, to Ezekiel 2. The scroll contains the judgments of God. Uh, these following chapters will make that clear. In Daniel, there were scrolls in chapter 7 and 12. They were sealed. They were not to be opened. Now there is a search for someone who can open it. And so, verses 2 to 4, the search begins. The the angel proclaims, who is worthy to open the scroll? In verse 3, though, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one anywhere can be found who is worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John begins to weep. He's distraught because no one can open it. This, this scroll contains the judgments of God, but it also contains the, the redemptive plan of God and his plan to, um, to save and restore. Um, someone needs to open the scroll, yet no one is found. We are, though, I think, expecting Christ to be the one who can open it because, as we, we've talked about, this, um, these allusions to Daniel and how John sets the, his book in the framework of the last days when we know uh, the Messiah would would come and um, we are now in these latter days and so uh, Daniel was told to seal them up until the latter days were in them the the scroll should be opened opening the scroll represents authority in executing the divine plan of judgment and redemption which is contained in the scroll again who is worthy in verse 5 Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is, uh, this is, this is incredible. Now there is someone who is worthy. It's the Lion of Judah. Uh, we have to do this quickly. But turn with me to Genesis 49. Genesis 49 verse 8, Jacob is uh, telling his sons what will happen in the days to come or in the last days. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up, you have, uh, you have, been, um, you have been raised up. Another way you could translate it. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to raise him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine. And his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine. And his vesture in the blood of grapes. So verse 9 and 10 uh, there's going to be a future king from the line of Judah uh, he's going to be the lion king
4: <laughs>
0: the scepter shall not depart from him his, he has washed his garments in wine, his vesture in blood of grapes, it's interesting to see the way that the scriptures then continue to interpret this, in Isaiah 63 we have the servant of the Lord um, who is covered in um, He's covered in grape juice. He's covered in the blood of his enemies that he has judged. And then in Revelation 19, we have Christ covered in in blood. um, As he he executes God's wrath. And so so here's the lion cub. Now then if you go to to Numbers 24. And by the way, that was that section of of poetry, the HDT. If you go to Numbers 24, 24. We have uh, Balaam providing an oracle. He's supposed to be cursing the people of God, but he, he can only bless them. And, uh, let's see, 24. There, there's, I mean, there, oh, there's so much I could talk about here. Um, his king shall be higher than uh, Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. There's a lot I could talk about. I could say uh, his, his king shall be higher than Gog. Gog is mentioned in Revelation 19 and 18. Uh, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries. He shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness, who dares to raise him up? Blessed are those who bless you. Cursed are those who curse you. Um, again, I could talk all day about how, how cool this is and what's being developed here. But we have this future messianic king who is going to rule and reign and defeat his enemies. And that's what we, what we expect here in, in uh, Revelation 5. What about the root of David? If you go quickly to Isaiah 11. We've talked about Isaiah 11 already because there's several allusions that then get brought out in Revelation. But Isaiah 11:1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The branch or the root in the prophets is uh, always talking, uh, almost always talking about the Messiah. It becomes a messianic symbol. Uh, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. That was the sevenfold spirit we talked about. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Um, he will judge with, uh, he will judge the poor with equity. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. Verse 4, Jesus has a sword coming from his mouth. And then verse, uh, verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. On him Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So again, we have this future messianic king who is being looked forward to in, in these Old Testament texts. And now these titles are given to, um, to Jesus here in verse five. Um, but here is, here's, here's the kick. He says, behold, or look, Uh, uh, look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. This is what John hears. Then in verse 6, he turns around and he sees something. He sees a lamb standing as though it has been slain. He hears about the lion of Judah and the root of David and then he turns around and sees a slain lamb. It's not what he was Maybe not what he was expecting. That might not be what have been what we were expecting. There's a, a lot of irony here. The, 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 the irony is that um, Jesus became the, the, the one who conquered. He is the messianic king. He is worthy because he laid down his life, because he sacrificed his life. Um, and was faithful unto death. Not that he, he came in and wiped out all of his enemies and uh, established some political rule on earth, but he laid down his life, and it is for that reason, then, that he he has conquered. Um, it's, it's a striking, striking description, and it's, it's beautiful. I, I, tears come to my eyes when I read this chapter, and there's, you know, I, I, as I... Think about John, and there's no one who is worthy. And then, oh, behold, you have the Lion of Judah, Lamb, or the Lion of Judah, the, the root of David. And then it's the slain Lamb, Jesus, who who laid down his life. And as what we see in um, the rest of the hymns in this chapter, it is because of his his uh, his death, it is because of the cross that Jesus is um, is the conqueror. The almighty conqueror, he is the one we are now to imitate. And because he is the one who conquered, it it is because he is the one who conquered that he can then exhort the churches to uh, be faithful and to overcome. It is coming from from the fact that he is the one who has, has been faithful and who has overcome. The slain lamb imagery is drawing from the Passover, Exodus 12, and Isaiah 53, especially Isaiah fifty three seven. Obviously, Isaiah fifty three is a is a very, uh, very very well known and beloved text. Um, But Isaiah fifty three seven, which says, "He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth; like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he not opened his mouth." The whole chapter is is really relevant. Yeah.
7: Do the Jewish people just uh, look at the first five books of the Bible? Or do they read Isaiah? And how come they don't recognize? Do they just refuse to
0: read it? Uh, no, they do. They do recognize it. Um, I mean,
7: don't they recognize Jesus? Christ?
0: Uh, they, they don't recognize Jesus. Um, still they, there, there, is a mess, there is a messianic hope. Um, and all throughout Jewish history, there has, they have, they've interpreted that as about the Messiah there was then, with the rise of Christianity and Christians saying, oh yeah, this is about Jesus, and them saying, no, it's not. There were alternate interpretations that came up saying, oh no, this isn't about a, one single person, it's you know, representing the nation of Israel, all these things. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's an important question because I don't, I don't think, I don't, it has to be Jesus, it is Jesus. Yeah. And so uh, yeah, uh, a lot of people, I think are, they, they still are waiting. So and
7: blind. So it's, blind. yeah, and, and and,
0: well, and that is what Isaiah's, Isaiah's entire uh, ministry was going to be about, was about hardening the hearts of those who, who already were refusing to, to believe. Well, I you know, I uh, work with a
6: traditional Jewish guy, and they still live a daily teaching synagogues that Jesus is pretty much just a joke.
4: Yeah. yeah.
6: He was a womanizer, a drunkard. Uh, yeah. That's uh, they,
0: what they teach him. Uh, so Jesus... Here, the slain lamb. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. And again, is he, you know, does Jesus just, He all of a sudden he got five more eyes and he became a lamb? Now it's representing the fullness of the spirit upon him. We've talked about the sevenfold spirit. Uh, horns, in uh, in the Old Testament, they represent power. Uh, a lot of times became associated with uh, the Messiah. If you were in the Psalms Bible study, um, it's a, a, a theme in, in the Psalms, the horn that will be, be raised. And so he has... Fullness of, of power and authority, um, it's a symbol of strength. Christ's death again; he overcame, he overcame his enemies. He overcame sin and the powers. He not only died to redeem people; he died and he overcame, uh, overcame his enemies. This is the, the slain lamb. It's it's something that we could we could dwell on, and we should dwell on. Um, it's the favorite title of Jesus in Revelation. It's used 27 times. Um, he he became, became king because he laid down his life. Uh, verses, verse 7, just to quickly go through some, some more of these things. He, he became, again, he, he got this authority because he was faithful and because he conquered. In the, the last verses, 8 through, through 14, and there's a few things that I, I, I wanted to, to point out. Um, the fact that we have the elders and the living creatures who fall down and worship the slain lamb speaks to the divinity of Christ, right? Because only God is worshipped. John actually says that, or was told that in Revelation 22, 9. Uh, He falls down to an angel. He says, don't worship me, only worship God. Only God is worshipped. And here we have um, these creatures falling down to the slain lamb. The slain lamb is is God. Uh, Again, in verse 9, I, I just, this is so incredible. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for, or because you were slain, because he uh, laid down his life, because of the cross, he is worthy now to take this authority to uh, execute judgment. And the rest of verse 9 by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, nation, uh, for, from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is an important text about the, the atonement, what Jesus did on the cross. It says he, uh, he ransomed people for God by his blood, or he purchased people for God by his blood. The death of Christ uh, was, a, was a definite atonement. It completed the job that it set out to do. The atonement didn't just, Jesus didn't just die and leave leave it up to um, people to just seal the deal, that it was somehow lacking and, and it needs to be, be completed. Um, Jesus died. He redeemed a people. He died to, to save a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And, and that nation is, uh, that, that this, this people, this multi-ethnic people, uh, he is made into a kingdom and priest to our God. It's it's a really, um, it's a really beautiful verse about the atonement, and um, gives me me hope because my salvation, my um, the, the satisfaction of uh, of the divine wrath due for for me and for us, it's not dependent on on me completing the deal and 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 and. Making some decision that, then, oh, okay, you're, the atonement's finally, you know, there it's satisfied. No. Jesus died for me. His blood ransomed me. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful verse. And also we have the, again, every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a multi-ethnic people from all over, all over the world. Um, I talked about the slain lamb as uh, connecting to the Passover lamb. God... Um, unleashes these, these plagues on Egypt, these mighty acts of his, his power that then um, brings out his people from captivity. He saves them, he saves them, brings them to Sinai, uh, enacts a covenant with them, and, and intends for them to be a, a kingdom of priests to him. And now, and, and that failed, the, the, uh, it, 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 um, not because of his doing, but the, the hardness of, of their hearts. Um, and, and it was always said that, it would, that the new covenant was coming. Um, and now you have the, the true Passover lamb, Jesus, who dies, frees his people, and saves a multi-ethnic people. Not just one, one uh, nation of Jews, but people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, he saves them to be uh, a kingdom and priest to our God, and so you get the the fulfillment and the, um, the finality of of this promise of of the covenant that was enacted. This is I, I I wish we could just talk through all of this. There's there's so much beauty, especially in these. Um, in these songs of praise, I would encourage you just throughout the week to to incorporate these into your prayers to God. um, To pray these things about who God is back to Him. Um, They're they're beautiful. And as I I mentioned, I think they should inform our worship and and the ways that we talk about God and the ways that we think about God. I think Revelation shows us overall that, um, that we are to model our worship after what we see in heaven and and, um, it's important to think critically and thoughtfully about how we worship and what we say, not to be legalistic, but so we can honor God and and, um, do things with excellence. And so um, if you've been at Harvest for a few years, one of the things that we've done in the past couple years is think about the the music we we sing and and the words and songs we use and and how can we glorify God. in our music, the focus in all of these songs is on God. It's on, on Christ and what he has done and who he is. Um, it's not about us. And so uh, it, it speaks to, to us today and how we are to worship. We're running a bit short on time. Uh, we had some, some good discussion. Uh, was there anything, so I won't go through everything, just that we could, would, could respond to and, and things that we could um, apply I will, will go through real quick uh, what I came up with as, as the, the shared truth for, for this passage, what I think is the, the truth, the uh, main idea, the main point that is being communicated. God and the Lamb are the sovereign judges and rulers over creation and are worthy of eternal praise and glory. God and the Lamb are the sovereign judges and rulers over creation and are worthy of eternal praise and glory. And so in light of this and in light of, um, in light of the themes that we've talked about, the sovereignty of God, His, his complete control, He is the one um, in all of this who is at the center of the universe. Even if it doesn't seem like He is in control, He reigns supreme. We will continue to see throughout the book this truth. The worthiness and glory of, of God in Christ, the way that creatures respond in worship, and also in, in salvation and redemption, I think these are some of the main themes of uh, these, these chapters. And so how, how can we respond to this? What, what does it look like to, to live in response to this, to apply this to our lives? How does this change how you live? How has this impacted you? I'd like to hear these last couple minutes from you what, uh, what you guys think and what, what the Spirit has stirred in you over this, uh, this past... Ever since I first
6: understood Crystallizing I've lived in constant gratitude, mm-hmm. um, and always, even no matter what the circumstances are, you know, the circumstances are just irrelevant. <laughs> Pretty much. Nice.
7: Just stick with His word of truth you know, yeah. which are the scriptures. Just stay you know, <clears throat> in the
0: center of yourself. Yeah. This word is faithful and true, as it uh, says in Revelation 22.
1: Yeah. The way that I've been looking at this past week is, um, one of my cousins passed away last Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to my brother on the phone. And then Pastor um, Gary mentioned to me today in his sermon. And I'm like, okay, there's symbolicism. I <laughs> have to say it like that. But the thing about it is, is I asked for this book for my birthday which is next month so my cousin sends it to me and um I forgot what I was going to say um uh, he was he was saying you know I said my birthday is not until next month and he said well you know cousin <coughs> every day is a birthday and so I said in response to that, yes every day is a new beginning so that's it all ties in with revelation and life and Christ and that's just been my go to this past week is every day. Mm-hmm. It's a new beginning, a new blessing. And so um yeah, and new hope and mm-hmm. it's just things mean, that God is good all the time, you know, yeah. so it's it's been a new awakening.
9: One thing I did was I said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come over and over again, mm. because I was thinking, if they're saying it mm-hmm. constantly, yeah. maybe I should try to say it, yeah. and so I'm driving and doing it, oh, that's <laughs> so, so good. anyway,
5: yeah. yeah? That's such a practical way of, of, of like, Mine, truly obviously <laughs> that's what you're doing but because uh, I was just thinking like for me it's so much about like having my mind keep thinking rightly about who God is because I'm just so dull I just forget so quickly that this is the picture of who Jesus is who God is and so like that is just such a great way of reminding myself yeah what that
0: is yeah and in the, in the scripture it certainly calls us to do things and to to Act and, and there's behavioral things that we can do, uh, but another another big part of, of God's revelation is, is informing the way that we think and the way that we uh, the way that we dream and imagine and our desires and just the the underlying assumptions that we have that form how we live our lives that sometimes we don't even think about that uh, that God's word shapes and, and um, be, makes us more like Christ. And so one of, the, one of the ways we can do that is by reminding ourselves of these truths over and over and over because like you said, Sherry, we, we, we forget so easily. Things come up in our lives and in our days that are important, but um, we, we just forget so so easily. Um, and, and again, with the focus on, on God's sovereignty in these passages, God's sovereignty can be Really, the source of of so much, uh, so much trust and hope. Um, I think it's the only source of hope. The only hope I have is if uh, I have a God who is in control of all things. Um, Yeah, one of the things I've been doing this week is is just copy and pasting into a you know word document and printing out the the four little or the five uh, hymns in this passage and praying those and saying those over and over. Um, that's a, a similar way to just get our get our minds and hearts focused on these things. My Sorry.
3: response yeah. is um, just realizing that I need to give Jesus to give God my full uh, allegiance. My greatest joy and satisfaction, like the elder should yeah. be worshiping God. Not necessarily a really good meal. Well, that's nice, but my greatest joy and satisfaction should be in the relationship.
0: Yeah, God's, God's ultimate goal in everything is his glory, and to enjoy that glory. He is worthy of that glory, and he desires that his creation enjoys glorifying him forever. If you've, you've heard of um, the, the Westminster Catechism, we did a catechism here for a while, um, The very first question is, what is the chief end of of man? What is the the ultimate purpose of man? Um, To enjoy God and glorify him. uh, To glorify God and enjoy him forever, is what uh, what they say. Um, It's a a very well-known pastor, uh, John Piper, who um, takes that and he changes one word. He says, uh, the chief end of man, or the the, the ultimate aim of man, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And so... um, this, this task that we have, that we were created to glorify and honor God, it's not something that you know, we've just got to put up with and we've just kind of dragged along and do it because we have to, but no, that we find true joy. Jesus said, I have come that you might have joy and, and joy abundantly. We find true joy when we are in right relationship with God and when we honor Him and when we obey Him and we understand His love for us. and. Um, Revelation, I think, helps us to do some things to, to see that, but also to, to rearrange our, our thoughts and our desires so that we, we are in line with that. Anything else anyone wants to, to share before we close?
7: Well, I think you said that um, a lot of people are scared of Revelation. They're scared of reading it. And the more we read, I read it, the more I understand who God is, he's holy, he's worthy to be praised, he has a plan, he wins again in again, the end against death and evil. And so even though some things I don't understand, if they're literal or if they're symbolic, and I try, but there'll be some things I don't understand, what I do understand is God loves me and he has the best plan for me and he has a future, eternal future. For me and for those who believe, so I could kind of relax mm-hmm. and just enjoy reading it and yeah. try to figure out. that if I don't understand anything, it's increased my faith. That yeah.
0: I, yeah. that's beautiful, and that is exactly what I wanted with this. And so we're four weeks in, and I've accomplished my goal. So, uh, so we're good. No, but that—that is—that is—that is my goal. Is that that we would uh, we would see the big picture and we would. Um, not get necessarily bogged down in all the details that are important, but to, to understand uh, the message, which you just articulated beautifully, that, uh, that there is a, a future plan. God loves us, and he's in control, and all things are going to work out. So. Well, uh, well, great. Peace be with you all. Um, you, can, the, you can go over the, the homework assignment. It's, it's nothing crazy. It's just similar to what I've been doing. I already have it handed out, so don't have to pass it out. But, um, but yeah, it's great to be with you all. Thank you. Thank you. Can uh, us That would be great if I could get some, some help doing that.